Hey guys, this is AC, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Hello everybody, we are back with yet another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Anushan, and today we got a five-man pod for you guys. With me, I have AC. What's up, guys? I got Aswi. Howdy how. I got Eric. Yes, sir. And we have a returning guest, Moss. Hi, hello, howdy. So, for today's podcast, we really wanted to break down what's going on with the Lakers this season, and there's a lot to unpack given their recent struggles, and obviously the injuries they're dealing with, and their Western Conference rivals. But of course, we can't even begin to talk about the Lakers without mentioning not only one of the great Laker legends, but an NBA all-time great as well, Elgin Baylor, and his unfortunate passing. Our hearts go out to the Baylor family as we lost a real gem of a player and a man. So guys, I turn it to you. What do you guys think of Elgin? Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, what a loss for the NBA. This is a guy who, all the flashiness of the game, all the excitement that you see, it really comes from him. Right, we think about the kind of creativity with this game, the the jump shot, the crossover, the hang time, the spin move, the euro step. All of this really comes from one guy, and he he's often considered the greatest player to never win a ring. And man, I wish I could take a time machine and watch him play live because apparently guys like you know Dr. J would say that watching him was watching like God or something because he. He inspired all these guys with all their moves. He thought about the game in a different way that no one else, up until when he played, no one thought about basketball the way he did. Yeah, so you mentioned his creativity and some of the things he brought to the game. He is the NBA's first athletic wing. I mean, truly athletic wing, a guy who could float in the air and make these plays. You know, he was Dr. J before Dr. J, and he was that Michael Jordan type of guy. He brought that athleticism to the wing position. He was a dominant player. I mean, you're talking about a guy who, as a rookie, put up 25 and 15. This is a guy who's had, you know, 71 points in a game. His career scoring average is third all-time behind only MJ and Wilt. I actually think there's a a litmus test you you can use to see how much someone knows about NBA history. You ask them about the greatest players and ask them to give you their top 30 or so. Frankly, even maybe their top 20. And if they don't include Elgin Baylor, that means they don't maybe know quite as much as they think they do because this guy was an icon of the game. And one last thing about him, you mentioned that he is considered to be the best player to never win a ring. The story of how he did not win that ring is kind of heartbreaking because here's a guy who, along with Jerry West, would go to these finals year after year and face these stacked Boston Celtics teams. And then finally, when he was old, and injured in his final season, he retired, and that was the season that Will Chamberlain and and Jerry West finally did win a ring. So it's a little bit unfortunate. I know some some people consider that to be a championship for him, but he just played a little bit in the regular season. But regardless, his his impact is undeniable on the game of basketball. So it's important to remember Elgin, or actually Mr. Beller, for having a bit of a dual legacy. So. We know about his statistical accomplishments. We know about his stylistic accomplishments being the first great athletic wing, creating hang time almost improvisationally like Thelonious Monk 
with Jazz. But the thing to really get to the nexus of his legacy is to remember his career was defined by being second. He followed up Bill Russell, who was drafted in 56. He was drafted in 58. And right behind him, the year after, in 59, came Wilt Chamberlain. So he was buttressed on both ends by two players that historically are the definitive players of that era, even though he has a case for statistically being their equal. But as history goes, it is what it is. And for whatever reason, he's not exactly remembered in the same nostalgia as those two guys. Um, he later on, of course, became a GM, but he was the second black GM after Wayne Embry, who also, as far as being a GM, has a much more storied and awarded legacy as being a great GM. And Beller, of course, was the GM on the lowly, hapless Clippers for 22 years under Donald Sterling, which speaks for itself. But if you get past that, and I'm, I'm from D.C., born and raised, that outside of four years of my life being in college, I've always lived here. Elgin Beller means so much to the legacy of DMV basketball. I mean, we're talking about an area that has produced Hall of Famer Dave Bean, future Hall of Famer uh, Kevin Durant, Hall of Famer Adrian Dantley, uh, number one pick Markel Fultz, number two pick Michael Beasley, lottery pick Victor Oladipo, a, just a litany of guys that are great players. And if it wasn't for Elgin Beller at Spingarn High School in the early 50s, being this all-world prep player, you probably wouldn't know these guys because Elgin made people flock to this area when prep basketball was concentrated in New York at the time, Elgin was a trendsetter and laid the framework for all of your favorite players, but he never gets that like recognition. And that tells everything about Elgin that I could possibly think of. Forgotten, but a giant and monumental. Yeah, I think Eric really summed it up incredibly well. And, and of course, like Ray Baylor, he was the first guy to really pioneer the small forward position, right? Like like you all have said, he really showcased his versatility from the position, doing a multitude of things. From being an imposing figure on the glass to a dominant score from a variety of different spots on the court. It was just incredible to see. And really what I felt set Elgin apart from so many of the other players was he was the original, the OG one-man fast break. Way before the LeBrons, way before the Westbrooks, this guy could take the ball from a defensive rebound and go coast to coast like nobody in his time ever could. He showcased such incredible speed and athleticism that really, like you guys said, set the framework for what we see in today's league. And of course, he had these absolutely insane seasons, the 61-62 season, just absurd. 38.3 points per game, 18.6 rebounds, and the guy was, he couldn't have been more than 6'5", a 6'5 forward. It's, it's crazy. So, of course, he's had three seasons scoring 34 points per game, which is also really incredible to keep that elevated level of scoring up. 
And honestly, it's just really sad that the NBA family has lost such a incredible legend. And on that on that season that he averaged the thirty eight and nineteen, it's important to remember he was actually playing weekend games because he was active duty military. No practice. My man was suiting up, putting on his chucks, dropping thirty eight and twenty, basically. <laughs> no, well said, Eric. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so rest in peace to a Lakers legend. And speaking of the Lakers, you know, we did bring Muss on here for a reason. Because the Lakers, guys, they are in a world of trouble. Coming into the season, they were probably the preseason favorites to be the champions. And even after the Nets were assembled, the Lakers still had it going on. AD goes down and... The Lakers, you know, struggle here and there, especially when Schroeder was also out, but they still maintain the second best record in the Western Conference. And then this weekend, Muss and Eric's greatest nightmare happened. An injury to LeBron James. Dun, dun, dun. I can't even laugh at that. Yeah, man, it was it was depressing to see. And I'm not going to comment on whether the uh, play was dirty. A lot of people have their opinions. But I will just say that I'm happy that it wasn't also a knee injury, the way he got rolled up on by Solomon Hill. It could have easily been both an ankle and a knee. So he was lucky in that case. But man, when the foot goes to the outside of the leg in in an ankle sprain, it is the worst thing you can see. Yeah, I mean, if you follow LeBron's career, this man has some ankles that are built out of, like, I don't know, like adamantium or something, because he will twist his ankles... Several times a season, I swear every playoff run, he twisted like two to three times and he just resumes the game, whereas a lot of other guys would be out for like a week or two. But this time, the ankle went the other way. And like you were saying, Musk, for a second, I actually thought he just broke his entire foot. I mean, that's what it looked like to me because it definitely was inward contact. And he is someone who definitely embellishes how much he's hurt sometimes. And he, he likes kind of milking his injuries a bit, but he doesn't go around rolling around on the court like that. I've never seen him do that before. So I knew it was something serious. And this is a big concern for a couple of reasons. First of all, let's focus on the LeBron part of it. Here's a guy who was playing really well, but he is now, you know, in his 18th season. So any time missed can't be optimal. I mean, on the one end, you could say that it's rest and relaxation or or at least a lack of wear and tear because he will be missing a few weeks. But it, at the very minimum might mess up his conditioning and it certainly takes him out of the MVP discussion. And he was actually in the running, in my opinion, for a first team all defense spot. And that's probably now in jeopardy as well. Yeah, you know, Kyle Kuzma said he's never heard LeBron yell like that. So he knew it was serious. And all this buzz people have been saying for the past couple of years, how, oh, LeBron is, he's just mailing it in on defense. It was so nice to see for a change him really showing everybody that he's an incredible defensive player. And for him to go down like that, I'm, I'm with Muss in that I don't want to say that it was dirty. There, there are even some Lakers players who speculate that that was the, a plan of Solomon Hills. Like this was pre-planned that they were going to take out LeBron like this. But I mean, it just seemed incidental to me. But man, it, it's really put a a damper to the sales of the Lakers. I don't think it was purposely done, or at least I guess I don't want to believe it was purposely done. I I can't imagine this is a situation that parallels the Saints in football where (laughs) we're putting out bounties on players and, oh, yeah, we're going to go out and 
Yeah, Bounty Gate. That's what it was called. <laughs> We're going to go out and injure another team's most prominent player. I, I, I can't imagine that was the intention. I understand the Lakers are annoyed right now, and they're reeling. Anthony Davis was already an issue, but they were barely treading water with LeBron uh, playing. So, yeah, it's dire times right now. So the, the trade market needs to open up, and this upcoming trade deadline couldn't come any sooner. And we're finally seeing how much pressure is going to be put on the other Laker guys here because they haven't really been put into too many situations where they really have to step up their game to like make sure that they win because AD has always been great when he has been playing and LeBron's LeBron James. He always finds a way to pull them out and find a way to win games when it's really needed. But now it's going to be put a lot onto the hands of Dennis Schroeder, Kyle Kuzma, Amontrez Harold. Like these guys really need to start stepping up and we don't know how long LeBron's going to be out with this injury. And of course he is the heart and soul of their offense and he's a pretty important part of their defense when he does decide to get engaged so it is going to be really interesting to see how things play out given how tight and how important it is for the Lakers to have a good playoff seating uh going into these playoffs I know you made a series of points there that I, I totally agree with you know the first being that for much of this season LeBron kind of picked up the slack for various Lakers that seem to be playing their way into shape whether it was Anthony Davis early on whether it was Cantavius Cowell-Pope, who frankly looks a step slow almost the whole season, though he started out shooting really well, his shooting is now completely tailed off. Whether it was Mark Gasol, who looked you know out of shape. Now, and a lot of guys, I thought, I think they believed that the, the season was going to start in January, so it did catch people by surprise. But LeBron came ready, and he was putting forth that effort every night. In his absence, it's up to those guys to live up to their potential, not even to play beyond their means. But even if they could just play what they're capable of doing, which very few Lakers have really done this season from beginning to end. Guys have had stretches here or there where they've been hot, but I can't say there's that many people who have consistently performed outside of LeBron. And here's the reason why it matters, guys. And this is what I want to sort of convey to the audience out there who might be thinking, oh, big deal. AD will be back. LeBron will be back. Well, the reality is with Anthony Davis, we don't know when exactly he will be back. We know that at least as of last week, he was two to three weeks away at minimum. So let's say he's he's going to be back another two weeks. Well, that's in this condensed schedule, that's basically eight games. And if it's three weeks, that's 12 games with neither AD nor LeBron. And even if they just have AD and the supporting cast, I'm not so sure that they're likely to win a lot of games. Let's say LeBron is out for one month. And in that one month, they play approximately 15 to 16 games. Let's say 15 for the sake of simplicity. I mean, realistically, what kind of record can you expect with no LeBron and AD missing a good portion of that? I, I think if they go like seven and eight, that would be a, a really, really surprising. I think it's much more likely they'll win, you know, like maybe four of those games. And they're only a few games ahead of the rest of the Western Conference. So you're looking at the San Antonio Spurs in seventh place are only a few games behind in the loss column. So this could get really ugly really quickly. I mean, there's an obvious issue right now the lakers don't actually have anyone that can act as an offensive fulcrum or or centerpiece per se i mean you have dennis schroeder who on paper he's a very good scorer but he's not exactly a very good creator cal kuzma who 
we thought would be some type of developing big three, though his defense has improved, he hasn't shown much offensively to make you think that he can act as the centerpiece of, at this point, I don't even know, a league average offense because the, the Lakers crater without LeBron and AD on the floor. So it's really looking potentially tragic right now. Well, this season has this strange play-in situation, which I, I think will be fun because if you're a seven seed or an eight seed, you have to play against a nine seed and the 10 seed in these matchups where it's basically you play two games and you're expected to win only one of the two. So you do have an advantage only to win one of the two games. It's basically a best of two series where the lower CT would have to win both games. But this is basketball, and in a one-loss elimination game, I don't care who you have. I mean, just look at March Madness. Upsets happen all the time. Is there a chance they could fall down as low as the seventh seed, which means they would need to be in a play-in game? And to clarify, I'm talking at the end of the season. So even if they end up at ninth seed, by the time LeBron comes back and everything, assuming everything goes as we think, could they wind up in the seventh seed or lower? They could. I, I doubt it. Right now, I'm I'm operating under the logic that they'll end up by the end of the season somewhere around the sixth or fifth seed. But there's definitely a, a world where they end up seventh or eighth seed. Well, particularly seventh. I don't know about eighth seed and have to play the playing game. I'm not so worried about the playing game per se. To take the analogy to March Madness and run with it. I do think there's something to be said about upsets not being as prevalent with professional players. So in a a playing game, in an actual playoff atmosphere, I'm not worried about LeBron losing to a 10th seed. (laughs) Not at all. I think if AD is able to come back relatively within the next, hopefully, one to two weeks, I, I think they can somewhat manage around the third or fourth seed but if 80 still without a timeline for his return i just can't imagine a lebron and 80 less lakers team staying within the two to three range and potentially they do have a chance at dropping to the six seven or even eight because again like you said the spurs right now are the seventh team in the western conference And the Spurs are no joke either. Like, yes, they're not going to be competing for a championship, but they're good enough to beat a lot of the good teams in the league on any given day. So the Western Conference is definitely, it's like a jungle out there, right? So if you're not prepared and you're not giving your A game every single night, and especially when you're playing injured, it's very easy to fall within the standings. So it would not surprise me, to say the least. Yeah, well, when you guys look at the standings right now, the Lakers are currently third place with the record of 28 and 15. The Clippers are only half a game behind. So I think it's pretty safe to say that they're going to lose the third seed to the Clippers. Now, when you think about the Nuggets and Blazers, they're within three games behind the Lakers, but Jokic is playing at an MVP level. So I wouldn't be surprised if they get ahead. And moving forward, I mean, Dame Dollar is Dame Dollar, right? So. I I feel like they can even go past the Lakers. I'm not so sure about the Spurs, Mavs, and the Warriors. The Mavs and the Warriors, they have their Luka, their Steph, but 
they don't have that that complete team success because I think right now they're about eight games behind. So I'm not convinced that they can surpass the Lakers, but I mean, it's possible. And the Spurs are even further back from that, but somehow they're above 500 with that, that roster. So look, the West is so talented, but I don't know. I, I just have faith that somehow the Lakers can pull through. And this is the perfect example of the famous quote by Zaza, nothing easy for LeBron, right? Like nothing ever is easy for LeBron. <laughs> That's very true. Well, I, I think w- between the Spurs and the Mavs, I'm going to I'm gonna discount the Warriors. I, I just don't, haven't seen enough from that team consistently to think that they're going to make any kind of run here without Klay Thompson. The Spurs, I would be surprised if they actually came up to the sixth seed because their schedule the rest of the way is very difficult. And also, they missed so many games through COVID in the, in the first half of the season that the rest of their schedule is very condensed. They have very few rest days. I think they have one of the most packed schedules left in the entire NBA. On the other hand, the Mavs have the easiest remaining schedule in the NBA. And Luka Doncic has quietly found a three-point shot, which was the one thing we all criticized him for. And now he's just completely unstoppable and Porzingis is starting to look better as well. So, you know, they win 60 or 70% of the rest of their games while LeBron and AD are out and the Lakers go, you know, a few games below 500, they're going to get passed. And then they're in the seventh seed. So it's not impossible. Now the question is, when AD and LeBron come back, are they capable of making you know, a crazy run given we know how good they can be if everyone else is healthy to sort of climb back up after that happens? Yeah, I'm worried about the Mavs. Luka is also one of my players that I'm continuing to watch, and he has been sensational. I just hope he can keep it up and uh, bring it to the playoffs. But while I'd like to obviously avoid the playing games, I'm going to take an insanely optimistic view on the situation. Considering the possible time off for AD and LeBron, they might need a few games to ramp up back up to full game speed. So playing in the playing games might somehow be an advantage you know you don't have to play the top seed right away you can get a game or two against one of those lower eight or nine seeds and get back into that full game shape that you need for the playoffs is that a mustardamus prediction no (laughs) this is is just me you know taking the worst case scenario and trying to look on the bright side I mean, that's uh, I, using actual elimination games as warm-ups is uh, the height of Laker arrogance right there. So you, you, you're <laughs> typical classic Lakers fans here. Look, I think they're going to be hopefully a top six seed, but it's it's going to be very hard considering the timetable on uh, AD and LeBron. I know Marcus All is going to be coming back. He's been practicing and getting shots up in uh, warm-ups, but he hasn't been playing yet. I but mean, he pretty a... clearly caught COVID because <laughs> it's like he's in the COVID protocol. No one is saying that he had COVID and yet he needs to spend a week with conditioning now that he's cleared. I mean, unless he was doing nothing but just eating cheeseburgers while he was out on COVID protocol. I don't know why he would need an additional week to condition himself. So I think it's fair to say that the man actually caught COVID. Have you seen his physique? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. But even with this crazy tubby little tummy, can we just say, <laughs> to be uh, kind to him, he he still was playing. So the fact that all of a sudden now he needs to actually get his wind, it's not like he you know came into the season with a six pack. So 
I'm pretty sure the guy caught COVID. I don't want to like you know spread rumors here on a podcast, but I'm spreading rumors on a podcast. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's partly due to his uh, overall uh, physique, as you mentioned before, but it's also to come to age. You know, he's not a LeBron who has taken care of his body for years and years. You know, he he looks a little bit slower than he used to, and I think he's uh, having a bit more trouble trying to get up to the game speed that the Lakers are running at. So, Moss and Eric, you're two of the biggest LeBron guys I know. You've watched him his whole career. This is rare to have a time where LeBron has actually been out. And at high ankle sprain, it could be anywhere from three weeks, uh, you know, six weeks. For those of us who play fantasy football, a high ankle sprain is like, oh, man, I got to cut this guy. Because that means, you know, four to six weeks worth of games missed, which is, that's basically your entire fantasy football season. And LeBron has shown an incredible capacity to recover from ankle injuries, though never a high ankle sprain before. He actually flew with the team. He was in a walking boot, but he didn't have a crutches. He looked like he was walking relatively normally. How many weeks has LeBron James missed? Four. I'm going to say five or six. In, in five or six, is that the Lakers being cautious then, or is it LeBron actually needing that amount of time? I think LeBron will probably need about six weeks. Uh, he'll probably want to come back earlier, but I'm pretty sure the Lakers are going to be ultra cautious, especially since they do still have some time to see where they're going to be uh, when he wants to come back. So depending on where the Lakers are in the standings, he might want to come back a little bit early, but I'd take it on the six weeks. Boy, that's a lot of the remaining season. If it's six weeks, even if it's four weeks, like Eric said, I mean... <laughs> You better hope AD is back and, and back and dominant. And let's be honest, the record when AD has played without LeBron has been pretty poor. So I'm not really sure how much they win, even with AD, much less without AD. And he wasn't particularly dominant <laughs> the last time we saw him. It was as if he was playing his way into shape, which I don't know how being in convalescence for like a month how that helps with playing yourself back into game shape. He he didn't look like himself. So we'll see, but I am not optimistic that even if AD came back prior to LeBron uh, coming back, that it's actually going to positively affect their win losses. I think in an ideal situation where you'd probably be looking at a case where the Lakers are sort of coasting, they're not really falling too far out of the standings. AD comes back and he actually plays like the AD that we know he's capable of being. And it sort of gives LeBron a window to get more rest than he would actually really need, which would be a good thing for the Lakers because if they're able to make it, which they will most likely, into a good playoff seating and LeBron's fully rested and healthy and ready to go for the playoffs without having to expend every single night putting up ridiculous MVP-like numbers, then... I do think that the Lakers, as far as a playoff bout would go, would look a lot better given all those things in the background. So I, I do think that it, again, is really dependent on 80s timeline to come back. But of course, we have to see how the Lakers end up uh, playing to what we know they're capable of playing to. Yeah, a lot of this is going to come down to how AD plays once he gets back. You know, he definitely looked like he was playing his way into shape coming off the uh, very short offseason. But I think he's probably taken some time to get some cardio in, you know, trying to keep himself in as much shape as he can with the Achilles injury, even though it's not really an Achilles tear. It's just like soreness and everything. But I think he's going to come back and hopefully come back strong 
And I think this team with Schroeder running the point, that pick and roll with Schroeder and AD is going to be something to watch. All right. Well, if you're the Lakers, right, we can talk about what they can do externally, what they need to add to potentially you know, stem this tide and, and even to build toward the playoffs. But what about internally? Who on the Lakers needs to step up here? And I don't mean unrealistically. Like, I'm not saying that THT needs to average 40 points a game here, but who realistically within the skill set that they already have can get a little bit better or perform a little bit more to make up for this absence and at least keep them relatively afloat? Three players, Schroeder, Cal Kuzma, and Montrez Harrell. Montrez Harrell should be giving a double-double right now, and he's averaging something like six, seven rebounds. He should be giving you double-figure rebounding, and his scoring should up in the absence of AD, and right now, Gasol, his scoring should hover somewhere around 20 points per game. Kuzma playing superb defense, he can score more, and Schroeder is the person who needs to step up the most. He's been arguing for the last three seasons or so that he deserves to be looked at as a marquee point guard. Well, this is the perfect time to show your bones. Prove that you belong amongst the top 10 point guards. I mean, he's not a top 10 point guard, but it's an opportunity to prove the naysayers wrong. His scoring ability, he should be able to score somewhere In 35 minutes a game, something like 23 a game. That definitely needs to go up from Dennis Schroeder. So I'm I'm looking at him mostly. To your point, Eric, he's actually in the midst of contract negotiations with the Lakers right now. And reportedly, he's looking for something like $20 million per year. Whatever he gets will probably be fair in the sense that the Lakers have no other means of adding a player so they can go via bird rights, they can pay him. Probably more than he's worth but what they could best get from another player. Because open market, they, they're very limited because of the cap rules. But he needs to prove that. And I think you mentioned his scoring. When I think of Schroeder, what I think he really needs to work on is his passing. He is a, a really poor passer. I and I don't mean the lack of willingness to pass. He tries to pass, but he's very inaccurate. You'll see this when you watch him. He'll throw the ball at people's feet. He'll throw it over their heads. He'll throw it to the left of them, I mean, behind them. He needs to be much more accurate as a passer. I I do think, though, his defense has been incredible all season long, and when you put him in his proper role as a, as a third option behind LeBron and AD, he can be fantastic. But I, I agree with you that he could certainly improve. You know, it's funny you mentioned his passing because recently he's been saying how the team needs to move the ball more. So, I mean, you're right. He He definitely is a willing passer, but... He needs to pass better. Now, on the point that Eric made, I just want to point out, Eric, for like the third podcast in a row, you copied every point I was going to make. I was going to say Schroeder, Kuzma, Harrell. I see you. I see you copying me, Eric. (laughs) You're using copy very liberally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on the point of Schroeder, Recently, Frank Vogel actually said that Schroeder is the head of the snake while LeBron's out. And look, he's been very vocal lately. He's clearly trying to take more of a leadership role. He even said how the team needs to shoot more threes. And if you recall, at the beginning of the season, he said that he wants to be a starter. He wants to be that guy. Well, Dennis Schroeder, now's your time to shine. Now's your time to be that guy. 
But my concern with him is if you look at his numbers compared to previous years, his numbers are down. He's shooting a paltry 31.5 from three. So, I mean, yes, we need to shoot more threes, but my dude, you need to make more threes too. And to the point, again, with Schroeder, right? I think he's been okay for the Lakers, all things considered. And when we speak about all the role players for the Lakers, in my opinion, I think Dennis is probably the most pivotal player amongst the role players that needs to be important because, one, like we spoke about, he sort of is delegated the role of a secondary playmaker. But if he's not actually playmaking for anyone, he's only looking for his own shot, it's going to hamper the team in that sense. Of course, LeBron can handle a majority of the playmaking, but there's going to be times when either LeBron's not on the floor or the defense is shifting their attention towards him. So now it's his responsibility to get other people involved. And, And again, like he's a steady source of offense for this team. So with that in mind, he needs to be at the top of his game, especially with LeBron and AD being out now. And of course, he does things on the defensive end, which probably don't get seen in the stat sheets, but are very important nonetheless, like fighting through screens, being an annoying on-ball and off-ball pest when it comes to guarding his man and, you know, helping to guard other people. And he has a really good frame and size at the point guard spot. So those things are intangible stuff. And It's going to be important for Schroeder to not only show, like as Eric said, that he is an important and valuable point guard to this team, but also he needs to show that he can translate this play into the playoffs once the games really start to matter. You guys bring up good points, but those are the key players that you would expect to get increased numbers with the absences of AD and LeBron. But I want to bring it to a person that not many people are thinking about, and that's THT. Look, it might be asking a lot from a second-year guy who's this raw, but I think he has a skill set that can really thrive on this team. His drives are unbelievable. He can get to the rim at will, and I think those drives will open up opportunities for the likes of KCP, Wes, Kuz, and Keith for threes. And that's when they really thrive, when people like LeBron or THT or Schroeder are getting to the rim, drawing attention from the other players, and swinging the ball around to the open man and draining a three. Must that's a fantastic point. I think what they really lack without LeBron on the roster is somebody consistently get to the rim because it's really Schroeder now is the only guy you can reliably do that. And their entire offense is really built upon putting pressure on the rim and then spraying out to three-point shots when the defense collapses. Right? That's what LeBron does, what AD does, what Schroeder does. A lot of their plays are designed that way. THD is a fantastic slasher. I think there's an argument for him to actually start right now in place of LeBron because what I don't like about THD is he's a very poor three-point shooter but here they need the ball in someone like his hands to actually make plays and I think that the coaching staff has figured out how to use him very effectively because earlier in the season he was basically attacking on the strong side and at first he was successful then the league adapted to him they realized this guy is purely a slasher He's mostly going to go, you know, right and then try to finish with that weird shot, which Oswee calls the what to do shot because of the ridiculous hand motion that he makes. <laughs> it's a it's a ridiculous shot that basically only he does in the entire NBA. But but teams adapt it. What, one of the things that Frank Vogel has done is he's using him a lot on the opposite side, on the weak side, coming off of a screen so that he has much more space and then can attack where there isn't help. And then he's been finishing those plays. So he's been really good in the last few weeks 
And I think he's a guy who can really step up and fill a void here. Yeah, you guys mentioned THT, and this is a kid that I really like too. And I've thought about this specific point for a while, but I feel like when young players have a chance to play under some great players like the LeBrons, the Jordans, the Kobe's, um, on and on, some players rise to the challenges and others fail miserably, i.e. a guy who played with Kobe, Kwame Brown, right? So we all know Kwame just completely shot himself when he played with Kobe. Um, Kwame Brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As Stephen A would say. <laughs> the great, great comedy of all time on live television was Stephen A shitting on Kwame Brown. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> He's one of the worst players I think I've ever seen, but that's besides the point. But yeah, back to THT, I think it really does show that he's in the former of what I was talking about. When he does get minutes, he's always doing something that's positive. Whether it be, like you guys were talking about, his ability to get to the basket and making a big play at the rim, or just being active on defense and earning some more of that playing time of course the kid's still really young and he's prone to making a lot of mistakes like you said ac when it comes to his shooting and spacing not really knowing where to be on the, the floor there's things like that that he's not really up to speed yet but of course that comes with learning the game and from what i can see with the lakers it seems like he's kind of like the darling of that team now uh similar in the sense with caruso where he's constantly getting support from his teammates his coaches and that's always a great sign for young players right I like Tucker. I, I'm worried that his miscues on the defensive end, if he plays a lot of minutes, that he's going to give up a lot more points than he actually scores. Like there, There's a lot to like about him. He's talented. He's a burgeoning slasher. He's long to adopt Jay Billis. Very long. He has quick hands. <laughs> I don't know why I said very long. <laughs> Jay Billis has rants about long. Oh, so long. <laughs> so long. But yeah, he, he has a lot to like. It's just he doesn't understand switches at this time. So he routinely gets caught just like looking around and not understanding where he's supposed to be able to switch. Because the NBA is so switch heavy, the defenses they play, most teams, it's just, it's glaring how often he's making a defensive miscue. And it's grating. And it, it's something that he's going to have to get together if he's going to be relied on to play consistent minutes. I think that's an excellent point, Eric, because he is the one guy on that entire roster who's consistently making defensive mistakes. Now, there are guys with defensive limitations, like, for instance, Montrez Harrell, but he's always in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he has the physical tools, not just length. He's got some heft to him. He's actually the heaviest player in the NBA, six foot five or under. Are you calling and, him thick? So, yeah, he's really thick. That's the, the word I'm looking for. <laughs> with two C's. Like, yeah, exactly. But like most young players, he just makes a lot of unforced errors. One of the things he does over and over again is you'll see him overhelp into the paint. Like he'll help when there's no need to help, leaving his guy wide open on threes. Or he'll just blow the switch the wrong way. Or he'll forget to tag a roll man. Just a lot of little mistakes in team defense that he makes. And that's why I think that ultimately he's not going to have a very big playoff role for the Lakers. But I do think that right now he has a skill set they need while LeBron's not there. And like I said before, I don't even like him with LeBron that much because I'd rather have a real shooter next to LeBron. But without LeBron, he does give you some of that slashing ability they badly need. 
I'll agree with his defensive miscues, but I think with more added reps, he'll get a lot better with that. Considering the limited minutes he gets, he doesn't really have that much experience on the defensive end like all these other veteran players that you have around him. But I think with the mentoring that LeBron has been giving him, I think he'll definitely step up. And with these added reps, I think he'll improve a bit. So I have a guy that none of you have mentioned who I would love to ask our Laker guys here, Eric and Musk, what they think about this player. And that's Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who frankly has had a terrible season. I mean, he started off red hot and so hot in the beginning of the season that he somehow had 40% even after his slump recently. But man, can this guy not buy a shot? And, And it feels like he's lost all confidence as well because at his best, KCP is one of the best lock and trail guys in the NBA. And for those of you who don't know what that means, Lock and trail technique is when you are chasing a shooter around screens. He is fantastic at that. He's also really good in transition offense where he runs the floor really hard and he's a threat to shoot or for a layup. And he plays generally very hard, but for some reason this season, I don't know if it's just the wear and tear and the way that he plays. He's a guy who's very durable, so he hasn't missed a lot of games. Maybe it's a compressed season. Whatever the reason is, he just doesn't have it this year. And that's a guy who they need to play well because it's not even that he's just missing shots he's not even taking shots so if he's going to continue to you know put up three four shot attempts in a game they have no chance of winning in my opinion kcp is definitely a person that we need to step up a little bit i do feel like he's been playing so hard on the defensive end that i think he needs sort of a pass on the offensive end we know he can score we know what he can do he showed it in the playoffs and even in the beginning of the season but he's been a dog on the defensive end he's been chasing over screens he and dennis schroeder are absolutely one of the biggest reasons that their defenses rank the way they are but in this absence now he's definitely going to have to step up and i think if the team continues to do its slashing and kickouts, he's going to have to be a big part of that. I'm worried about him. He had that great start. He looks absolutely mortified when he's given the ball, even when he's wide open. He has been very good on defense. So that aspect is good that he hasn't let his lost confidence extend to that aspect of his game. But the man can't buy a shot. And then when he actually gets the ball in his hands, he's automatically looking to pass. I've even seen him do things like get an open pass for a corner three and purposely drive when he sees two guys in the paint because he's actually afraid to take the open three, which is ridiculous considering at a point for the first 15 games or so of the season, he was shooting somewhere hovering from three around 50%. So they really need KCP considering last year during the run to the finals, he was arguably their third best player at lowest, their fourth best player. So it's untenable for them to have success in the upcoming playoff run and through the playoffs without him performing somewhere around where he performed in last year's playoffs. I know I mentioned him before, but Marcus Gasol's coming back is going to be a big key to this Lakers offense, as well as their interior defense. Without him, they have only Montrezl Harrell, and he 
is not the greatest rim protector in the NBA, you know? So on the defensive end, Gasol is going to bring back a lot of that, at least rim deterrence, not necessarily a blocker. But on the offense, I think he's going to be key. He's always been able to find people on backdoor cuts and just finding the open man in general. So I hope he can work on his conditioning and get back real soon. Yeah, that's a good person, I think, because he actually was rounding into form before, unfortunately, getting COVID. His shot was starting to fall. The biggest issue with Marcus Gasol is his unwillingness to take open shots, though he started to shoot a little bit more in the weeks right before he got hurt. And defensively, he kind of just gets in the way in the paint more than he blocks anything, but he is more or less in the right place, at least. And you'll give him some size, which they badly lack right now, especially after they cut Damian Jones. And Marc Gasol has been actually really pretty decent this season at guarding on the perimeter. He's been good at these traps, these hard hedges. He's shown a surprising ability to do that kind of stuff. And there's really no one on the roster besides AD that can do that out of the big men. So I think they really could use him back and his absence is compounding to their problems. Absolutely. And I think... He hasn't really taken any threes, even though he's a very capable shooter. He's been really stretching out his shot again, and he's shown on the Raptors that he can shoot the three. So he's got to really come back to that and really unlock the spacing for the Lakers. All right, all right, all right. I've had enough Lakers for one day. Have you guys heard about this beef that Draymond Green is having with Tony Allen? They're going back and forth, taking shots at each other about who's a greater defender. Dude, it's literally the funniest thing I've ever seen on Twitter, especially the way <laughs> they're clapping back at each other. It's, it's, it's so fun to watch. Can we get a TLDR for the audience out there? So my man Draymond posited that he's the greatest defensive player ever. Wait, wait, say that last part again nice and clearly. Greatest defensive player ever, Draymond Green, out of of Michigan State, plays for the Warriors. That's his contention about itself. Tony Allen, six-time All-NBA defensive player, one of the greater perimeter players that I can ever remember. Greater perimeter defensive player. Sorry, not great perimeter. (laughs) I was about to say. (laughs) (laughs) Had to clean that up real quick. But he took umbrage with it. He he made some comments, said it's, you know, it's cap, like no one vetted you for this. No one gave the stamp of approval that you're the greatest. So Draymond being glib sees the response and is like, you know, my man, Tony, I, I was looking for your stamp of approval, but it's looking like your stamp has been wearing a little thin since 2015 when me and my squad won our first chip. Oh and we used God. you Ooh. and we Ooh. used you as a Trojan horse against your own team because oh you were such a liability that you were shooting your team in the foot. It's which actually is absolutely true. It happened. First of all, I love this fucking beef. This is amazing. I love so the back funny. and forth. It's A plus stuff. We need more Draymond, more Tony Allen in our lives. This is amazing. I don't quite agree with the clapback because he's insulting his offense, which makes no sense. I mean, no one besides Eric Fullwood is calling Tony Allen a great perimeter scorer. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is a classic case of the pot calling the kettle black. Like, you have one right. guy. Right. Who- 
does not have any offensive game calling on another guy who also has no offensive game. It's just so ridiculous. I know what's that what's that Barkley comedy says about he's got another triple single for Draymond Green tonight. <laughs> it's just like so ridiculous that Draymond wants to even bring up an, an offensive comparison when teams do the exact same damn thing to him. It reminds me of that meme of the two Spider-Men pointing at each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. But hold on, guys. Draymond has always been a lot worse than he thinks of himself in regards to his position in the NBA hierarchy. Of course. But, 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 he's a bit of a rich man version of Tony Allen on the offensive end. Yep. And Draymond isn't particularly great on that end. But we've seen him have random 30-point triple doubles. When the last time you seen Tony Allen do something like that? Don't worry, I'll wait. True, <laughs> true. I do think that Draymond is almost a prototype of what you want from a big defensively, right? If, if AD didn't exist, he would basically be the best possible version of a modern defensive big. His ability to switch, his ability to read whatever the defense is doing and react, his ability to still provide rim protection despite his size. And just a general speed that he brings to position. But Anthony Davis exists. Dwight Howard existed before that. There's just so many other great players going back from rim protectors like Matumbo and Alonzo Mornings to great perimeter defenders like Scotty and, you know, Dennis Rodman, who was kind of an all-position defender, Michael Jordan. There's just so many guys that it's such a ridiculous claim for anyone to say that Draymond Green is the greatest defensive player ever. And and there's one name that you didn't even say on that list of fantastic defenders, and that's Ben Wallace, who has a huge argument for being the best defender of all time, right? So absolutely, I mean, and I I hope he makes the Hall of Fame. I think it's really next month they're announcing it. I think he was. I mean, if you watch Ben Wallace, man, that guy, amazing, he, unbelievable. I've never seen another guy block more shots at the absolute apex of a yeah. jump shot. I'm talking like you shoot a jump shot at the apex, this dude's jumping up and getting it. He could bench like 500 pounds. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Dude's strong as hell, too. You're not bullying that guy. <laughs> the man was a key to the Pistons defense. Absolutely. And the only player I've ever seen Meta World Peace, the artist formerly known as Ron Artest, actually be afraid of. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 If you remember the actual Mouse in the Palace, my, my recollection of it is that it kind of starts them getting mad at Ben Wallace and walking away from Ben Wallace and then, you know, lying on the scorer's table. And then the whole thing kind of went from there with the cup being thrown. So yeah, oh, I agree. He, he wanted no part of Ben Wallace. He fled him. Right. Whenever I think about Draymond Green as a player, he's one of those guys who, you know, if he has a crew around him, He'll talk tough, but I mean, look, it's so easy to talk big like this, to flaunt your ring and stuff like that. When you're on these overpowered teams, like if he was on that Grizzlies team, I'd like to see him talk. I, I, I just, I just find it to be really silly whenever a guy on the Warriors, unless you're someone who really contributed like Clay Thompson, right? He has bragging rights. I give him that. But Draymond Green, come on, man. You're like the third option or the fourth option. If you want to count Iguodala before him, and then when Kevin Durant came, the fifth option, I don't know. I, I just think it's really dumb when people do that. But I love it for the showmanship of it. Yeah, Dre is a right place, right time all-star. 
Yeah. But his beef making is that a, is that a term beef making? <laughs> it sounds like cooking somehow. <laughs> his uh, his tendency to get you know into these random fights with other players you know via Twitter or verbal spats, literally chasing Kevin Durant off of his own team. <laughs> God bless him for doing that. Thank you. Um, all these things make him the next Charles Barkley on TNT. Right? We all see it coming. This guy's going to be the next generation's Barkley sitting up there making random arguments against players whining about the current state of the game he's gonna be that guy we all know it it's just so funny to me because for the years since tony allen's been retired i haven't heard one single word from him i haven't heard anything like all of a sudden draymond makes a comment and it riles this guy up enough that he has to clap back like that's how you know draymond has this absurd effect over everyone in the basketball hemisphere i mean tony allen added him though yeah, yeah, he he did add him, but it's it's the the need to feel compelled to add him is what I'm getting at, right? Like Draymond incites that kind of like rage within other people. Facts. Yeah, like I, I have a feeling if Anthony Davis made this comment, people might disagree, but Tony Allen's not clapping back at Anthony Davis, right? I mean, that's not happening. Oh, that's true. That's true. I mean, <laughs> but I think Draymond to belabor the point, Draymond knew what he was doing by making that like absurdist statement he wanted a response he got a response and this is what he he does he's building himself up to be the future barkley and he's you know planting the seeds as we speak for sure all right and i think that's a great place to stop we really went in depth with the lakers today and it seems like there really might be trouble in paradise for the guys in purple and gold And we also got to go into the mind of Draymond, or at least attempt to do it, and probably fail horribly at it since this guy's just an anomaly. But with that, we'd like to thank Musk for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. And if you guys like what you heard, don't forget to like, comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and catch us in our next episode. All right, take care, everyone. Peace.